Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Manic Monday isn't a thing at Wimbledon anymore, but Saturday kind of felt like it. There was way too many good matches going on at the same time. You wanted to watch them all at once. You can't really watch them all at once. I mean, you can, uh, but you end up missing a lot. I didn't want to watch just one match and break it down, so let's do a whole rundown. The reason so much was good, by the way, was because of that stacked Alcaraz quarter. You know, the one where six out of my top 15 power-ranked players are in there. Four out of my top 10. Three out of my top five. The one where, for upset alert, I'm like, I don't know, Davidovich Fakina. I don't really think he's necessarily going to lose, but I don't think anybody else is going to lose. Guess what? Nobody got upset. Like... I, I don't even think... I'm pretty sure every seed was in the third round. So whatever I put for upset alert was just going to be wrong. Like it didn't matter what name I put. That's why today was so nuts. And there was a point in time where four out of the top six men's seeds were playing at the same time. So let's get into it. Headline of the day. What am I going to remember about today? In three years, what's the match I'm going to remember? What's the moment I'm going to remember? I hate to say it, but it's Davidovich Fikina. That's what I'm going to remember. There are a lot of other good matches today, high-quality tennis, but nothing is going to be singed into my brain like what we witnessed from Alejandro Davidovich Fikina against Holger Runa. Let's take it from the top. All right? You guys have probably seen this. You know what I'm referring to, but for dramatic effect, I won't jump right there uh, to the end. Let's start with Runa serving at 4-5 to stay in the match. Uh, Fakina is going to have double match point. 15-40. This is where for the first time we see that ADF might have some trouble getting over the finish line here. Might be feeling the nerves. Uh, 1540, Runa hits a backhand down the line approach that's pretty central. And ADF just doesn't hit the forehand pass. Just hits it right through the middle. Uh, Runa hits a first volley. Tougher tougher second pass for uh, Fokina. Can't really fault him for not making that one. And Runa ultimately finishes. Ace for Runa at 3040. At deuce, Holger hits this forehand slice. Good one. Low. Middle, middle of the court, very short. Davidovich Fikina is going to be forced to hit an approach shot here from about shin level just behind the service line. Picture that. You can't hit that hard. 
you're you're way too far inside the court and the ball is way too low, you can't hit it hard. You're going to miss. Davidovich Fakina tries to hit it hard. He hits it 10 feet long. Add in another Runa ace. So good good first serves, big serving from Holger. Uh, but Davidovich Fakina had a couple of chances there to do a lot better than he ultimately did. Uh, at the same time, at that point, you weren't thinking like, wow, what a, what a choke. He, he blew it. No, n- nothing like that at all. All I'm saying is in hindsight, there were signs. There were signs on those two match points in the 4-5 game that this might be an adventure. And an adventure it was as we go to the 10-point tiebreak. And uh, it was Runa who actually had the sloppy start. Davidovich Vakina came up with a couple of really good backhands cross-court, uh, point-winning backhands cross-court. And Runa struggled on the forehand early in the super tiebreak. He uh, hit an unforced error down the line at 2-1, an unforced error going cross-court on a trade at 3-1. Both of them were decelerations. Neither of them were misses that that were easy on the eyes. I'll just say that. Both of them were, whoa, yikes. That, that, that looked tight. That didn't look right. 5-2, Runa tries to hit a forehand drop shot. Poor footwork. Ball got too low on him. Wasn't really a, a great position to hit the drop shot from. And uh, it's into the net. So that's three bad forehand errors on the first seven points by Runa. And it is 6-2 Fakina in the 10-point tiebreak. At the U.S. Open with the, with the old you know tiebreak to seven, He's in good shape, uh, but with the 10-point tiebreak, there's unfinished business. 6-2, uh, Runa does very typical Runa thing, which is come up with this spectacular shot with his back against the wall, kind of out of nowhere. Forehand return down the line, clean winner off of a, a wide serve that was just kind of cut off by Holger. I don't know if I can call it a bad wide serve, uh, but certainly it wasn't quite wide enough to escape the wrath and the fury of a screaming Runa forehand down the line. That was the turning point, I guess, when you look back. Uh, but, you know, Fakina was still holding the advantage for a long time. And at 7-5, after the 7-5 point, it certainly looked like ADF was still going to get through the finish line, the victor at the end of the 10-point tiebreak. Because it's 7-5... And Davidovich Fakina comes up with a backhand lob, which is which is pretty spectacular. Uh, where, you know, I'm actually I, I didn't write detailed notes on this point because the hullabaloo after the point really I think took my attention away from what had happened. But Davidovich Fakina definitely hit a great lob off the backhand that went over Holger's head, and it hit the back of the baseline. And Runa tried to challenge, and it wasn't allowed which I don't agree with. The point was clearly over. Runa did not continue to play. And it looked like when he initially tried to challenge, the chair umpire didn't hear him because the crowd was so loud. But even so, what's the point in not allowing the challenge? Like, let's get the call right. It's one thing if a player 
makes a move to the middle of the court. And that's where that's where I'm I'm all for umpires disallowing challenges. It happened at Tsitsipas against Andy Murray, where he hit a backhand slice. He started recovering to the middle, and then it went just wide. His slice went just wide, and then he tried to challenge. And then it's like, all right, that's not really fair because you clearly weren't going to challenge. Uh, but Faruna, it was a winner over his head. The point is over. Who cares if the challenge comes... Like, to me, you can challenge late there, and that's completely fine because you didn't continue to play. You, you see what I mean? Now, it wouldn't have mattered. The ball was in. It was a good lob by Davidovich Fakina. But I'm thinking at that point that Holger might lose his composure, that that disallowed challenge uh, might get to him mentally. All right, had to sneeze. Um, it's 8-5 to Vidovic Fikina here. Really good point at 6-8 by Runa. Bad backhand unforced error at 7-8 or 8-7, uh, where Davidovich Fikina just missed a neutral backhand wide. You shouldn't miss a neutral ball wide. Davidovich Fikina does this a lot. And it's just, why is your target what your target is? If you're not attacking, you shouldn't be putting a ball that you struck cleanly wide of the sideline. It makes no sense. So that was a shaky moment. And now we get to eight all. And this is where Davidovich Fikina makes a mistake that I will never forget. He hits a drop serve. Drop serves don't work. Do you know what works? First serves. First serves that go really, really fast compared to, you know, every other shot in tennis. Even if you're Davidovich Fikina and you don't have the biggest first serve in the world, it still is the most dangerous shot in all of tennis. And you are willingly giving that up, willfully giving that up to hit an underhand serve when Holger Runa is not really even standing that far back. And the result is that Holger gets up to it and hits what is the easiest return of the entire tournament for Holger. Fakina also came in behind it. So he didn't even really give himself to, I don't know, maybe chase down what would have been a Runa approach shot and make a pass. No. What he did was feed the easiest passing shot in the world to Holger. Now let me just cover this real quick. Here is why drop serves do not work. And yes, this was not an outstanding one, but even if it was a good one, yeah, maybe Runa would have been presented with a lower ball, but uh, it still usually just doesn't work. It's lower percentage. Uh, there are three reasons for this. There's no disguise. A drop serve looks nothing like a serve. So how are you disguising it? You can't disguise it. Your opponent is on balance. You're never going to get your opponent, you know, moving left, moving right, moving backwards. That's when drop shots are most effective. That's never going to happen. They're in their ready position. Look at this. This is them. They're balanced. So they're going to move quickly. And the third reason it doesn't work 
is because you're hitting a drop shot from the baseline. It's hard to hit a drop shot from the baseline. That's far back. That's why drop serves don't work. You can't disguise it. Your opponent is on balance and you're far back. They don't work, but he does it at eight all in the super tie break. And his explanation for why he did it was accurate. So you have to give Davidovich Fakina credit for that. He said, quote, I shit myself. He said, I shit myself. Because that's the only explanation. Match point 9-8. Davidovich Fakina blasts a forehand into the net. I actually think it was a good ball to attack, but he hit it completely flat. And that far behind the baseline, that was not really the way to strike the ball. He had to shape it just a little bit in order for it to work. So, uh, Runa wins. Davidovich Fakina, once again at Wimbledon, finds a really creative way to lose. Because last year in the second round against Yuri Vesely, he went to another fifth set tiebreak. And this time, I believe the score was 8-7. Fakina lost the point, crushed the ball out of the court and got a point penalty for ball abuse, which at 9-7 lost him the match. So he does ball abuse one year and then he does underhand serve the next year. And once again, we see why the most talented player outside the top 25, according to me, is the most talented player outside the top 25 and remains that way. Once again, we see that, unfortunately. Uh, I'm not trying to get down on him. I'm not trying to kick him while he's down. Uh, I, I think he'd agree with everything I've said thus far. Um, I just, you know, whatever he's doing mentally, which I, I do think he's trying because I noticed his some changes this year. I noticed that he's trying to kind of keep things more under control. He's not playing with as much, I guess, outward emotion. Uh, but to me, he just looks tortured. That's what it looks like to me, that he's putting every, keeping everything inside and his emotions end up eating him up. I see when he's successful, I don't see any joy. I see no joy when he's winning points. I see only despair when he's losing. And I don't think he's enjoying himself. I think he's terrified to lose. And that's the problem here. If I'm just from afar, just telling you what it looks like to me, that's what it looks like to me. I'm not a sports psychologist. I can't offer any solutions. And I'm sure he has, you know, some good people attempting to figure this out. And I'm sure he wants to figure this out. Uh, but he's just got to keep trying. And that's it, right? Um, Runa, look, I don't... Unfortunately, I, I wish I was able to watch this match from start to finish because it was an intriguing one. Uh, but again, so much was happening at the time that I, I can't say that I have a great feel for what was happening over the course of five sets in this one. Uh, I, I do think the quality was really high for uh, many periods of time. Uh, I really like the way Holger Runa is serving. I think he's serving pretty big. He's going after his second serve. The double fault numbers are pretty high. I think it's probably worth it. But one thing that I am questioning with Holger, 
I don't know if he's there yet as a volleyer for him to be, you know, for him to contend for the Wimbledon title. I don't think he's there yet as a volleyer. Now, he's coming forward a lot, which I like. And ultimately, when it comes to a player as young as Holger, you got to remember my mindset on this thing. Um, even if it's hurting him in 2023, I still think that's going to help him in, in 2024 and 2025. And when you're as young as Holger, that's a good investment. So I like that he's coming in. But would I be surprised if we look at his next match or his, you know, quarterfinal match or a semifinal match, which would be a great result for him already, and we say, you know, he came in a lot and he butchered a lot of volleys and that cost him. Would I be surprised if that ends up being something that comes into play for his Wimbledon? No, I would not be surprised. I want to throw that out there. He'll play the winner of Francis Tiafo and Grigor Dimitrov. This was a match that I really struggled uh, to get my eyes on, but I hear Grigor was in God mode, and now I'm wondering, you know, let's see if he can withstand the pressure of coming in tomorrow, into tomorrow with the two sets to love lead. Because as we saw with Andy Murray, it's harder. I mean, look, would you rather be Grigor or would you rather be Foe coming into tomorrow? I mean, that's an easy question. You'd rather be Grigor. You take the two sets to love lead. But I'm just saying in comparison to just playing it out, uh, because you get that fresh restart, I think it's a little bit more difficult for Dimitrov uh, to win this match versus had they been able to just continue playing. And then you have you know momentum and in the flow of the match and... And, and Foe needs to kind of dig out three sets in a row after losing two. I think that's a little bit tougher for Francis than just coming out onto court and knowing, all right, I got to win every set here. Let's win three in a row. New day, new conditions. Let's win three in a row. Um, I mean, for Dimitrov, of course, it's the mind that that you always... You know that you always question because the physical the physical abilities for the most part and especially on grass uh, they are all very much there. There have been a lot of signs for Dimitrov coming in that that maybe this would be a big tournament for him and he's in that veteran class of players where you look at the young guys and the lack of grass court experience. Dimitrov being the former semifinalist, I think coming into the tournament he was one of the guys who was like, oh, good form, a lot of experience on grass. Why not Grigor? And then what turned me off coming into the tournament for Dimitrov, not that I didn't like him, not that I didn't think that he could contend. Uh, you know, he, he got a mention in the power rankings, just didn't make the top 10. Uh, but, but what really turned me off for Grigor was he's been awful at Wimbledon for like the last five years now, which doesn't make any sense, but that's been what it is. So now we snapped that and he's got a great chance to beat Tiafo. Let's go to Zverev Berrettini. Matteo has done it again. He's playing top-tier grass court tennis, having not played any matches. And he did it last year. And it was really impressive when he did it last year. He missed all of clay court season. It was three months, no tennis. Comes back, wins Stuttgart. It was like, okay, great, but... You know, now your body's going to wear down. You're certainly not going to win back-to-back -back titles. No, he did. He won Queens. He defended his title in Queens. And this year, 
He misses not quite three months, two and a half months. He plays one match. It's a horrendous match. And again, Grass Berrettini, it's like, your eyes don't lie. If you've watched Mateo over the last three matches, you know he's playing awesome. You know the first serve is firing, the forehand is firing, the backhand is doing what it has to do to set up the rest of his game. Even the movement looks pretty good. And the mind is sharp. Very sharp, which is always a key for Berrettini. He plays tight margin matches. And certainly this was one of those. One break in the match. Berrettini got the break in the first set. Uh, I started watching start of the second and the third. Uh, look, the serve in the forehand for Matteo. Here's my breakdown of this match. Serve in the forehand for Berrettini. It's the best in the world in combination. I've, I've believed that at its best when he's healthy. I don't think anybody has a better first serve forehand combination. So you have to exploit the backhand. You have to exploit the movement. I'm not breaking any ground here, but if you watch this match, the extent to which Berrettini's serve dominated Zverev's return, you weren't going to get any exploitation for Sasha. There was no exploitation of the backhand and the movement the way Berrettini's first serve was dominating in this match. Just wasn't going to happen. Uh, let's get the stats up. High first serve percentage for Mateo and uh, the win percentage. Ready for this? I think it was 86. 86%. He made 69% in. He won 86%. Uh, the quality of return was never really good enough. Not a lot of depth. Not a lot of pace. Never got it to the backhand, really. And Mateo, every time he made a first serve, as the stats bear out, he won the point. Ready for this? Let's talk about the tie breaks. First set tie break. Mateo won all six of his serve points in the first set tie break. He won all six of them in two swings or less. Two swings or less. Serve plus one. Six points. Zverev never survived the serve plus one in six points in the first set tiebreak. Let's talk about the second set tiebreak. Mateo lost two serve points early in the tiebreak. Uh, one of them was a double fault. One of them was a rally. The five points he won in the second set tiebreak were won in two swings or less. So essentially, you know, you talk about Berrettini and winning the key service points in the tiebreak. Never won a rally. He never won a rally, and he won both tiebreaks. Never won a rally on serve. He won a very key rally at 3-all in the third set tiebreak, uh, which was a, a really great point by Berrettini, uh, mixing in tons of slice to keep Zverev at bay, and eventually it was Zverev missing a backhand inside out uh, on forced error. So he actually outlasted Zverev, and that was the key mini break down the stretch in the third set tiebreak, Whereas in the second set tiebreak, Berrettini won um, a nice rally at 2-1 uh, or 1-2 with the forehand inside out. Big one that forced an error. So Matteo looked really good in the rallies here. Uh, but the point is not that he didn't look good in the rallies. The point is that he didn't even need to play rallies because his serve was just that dominant.
Why did he win enough rallies to at least be, you know, to, to find those key moments in the tie breaks and obviously break serve in the first set? Well, the backhand was holding up. You have to say the backhand was holding up. Great control of the slice. Uh, Zverev does not like the low contacts because he doesn't get the acceleration and the RPM. You know, in order to be offensive from a low contact point, you have to be able to you have to be able to swing fast enough where one you're generating the pace, but you're also generating enough topspin to hit up on the ball without hitting the ball long, right? Obviously, you don't have that straight or that downward trajectory. You have to hit up on the ball, but if you hit it fast, you better get the ball down also. So attacking slice, attacking low slice is all about racket head speed. It's all about acceleration. Zverev's, it, it's not horrendous, but it, it's, not, it's not great. It's not where he excels. Forehand and backhand, same thing. Uh, also, I think his footwork can be a little bit slow moving forward. A little bit. What about the two-hander for Mateo? Made some key passing shots. Worked pretty well as a change of pace weapon. All of the passing shots were down the line. If you're Alcaraz, you have to take note of that. You have to make him show you that he can pass you cross-court. It was frustrating for me to see Zverev never really seemed to get onto that. I mean, every backhand pass that Mateo hits on the backhand comes, goes down the line. So, I mean, you, you have to cover it at a certain point. Uh, but ultimately, Berrettini just looks awesome. There's no two ways about it. I think Alcaraz is another level from Zverev. I don't think it's a comparable level. And there are a lot of things that Alcaraz will do a lot better than Zverev. Uh, one, I think he'll return better. But that's, that's not a certainty. What is a certainty for me is that he will deal with the slice, the backhand slice better, and he will approach the backhand better. He will have more success coming in on the backhand than, than Zverev did. Uh, I think the approach shots will be of higher quality. I think the net coverage will be of higher quality. And I think ultimately the finishing at net will be of higher quality. There were some key mistakes with the volleys from Zverev in this match at certain points. Um, but, you know, small margins. I covered them. Berrettini's first serve was the key at the end of the day. And the forehand behind it, you know. Let's talk about Alcaraz. He beats Nicholas Jari. Very, very impressive win. Like, very impressive win. Carlitos could have been upset. There's, I mean, I, I think Jari was bringing good enough tennis where Carlitos had to have the A game or he was losing. He was going to lose. You know, first of all, Nico, he brings so much firepower on every swing. He does what Alcaraz hates, which is take away all his time and don't let him attack. And Jari with his big first serve, made 74% of them. He made 12 out of 14 first serves when he was facing break point. He averaged 124 miles per hour on the first serve. So he served great. And Alcaraz still broke um, How many times? Five times. Over four sets. It's pretty impressive. 
on this grass court uh, against the level of serving that Jari brought to the table. Ultimately, Carlitos had to accept uh, a role in this match that he doesn't like to accept, but he did it. He did it. He's like, I'm not going to be in control. I'm not going to be able to play aggressive tennis because Jari is probably going to beat me to the punch. He's going to crush every return that he can. He's going to crush every serve, every plus one. And at the end of the day, my job is going to be absorb make balls scramble run defend extend and let's get some errors and that's what he did he got a lot of he got enough you know i don't want to say a lot of errors as if jari was playing badly but with an all out attacking style that jari was implementing Alcaraz, quite frankly, was simply making so many returns and playing so much great defense and absorbing so much of that firepower that he it, it, all he had to do was stick with it. Again, cover the court, absorb the pace. He did both of those things so well, and the errors were going to come. He won with his defense on grass. I've never seen him win like this. I've never seen it. And that's why, to me, it was such an impressive victory for Carlos Alcaraz in four sets. Also, good prep for Mateo, who's going to do a lot of things similarly. Now, here's the big difference between Mateo and Jari. Mateo's forehand is not just massive. It's reliable as heck. It's super reliable. So Alcaraz is not going to get the forehand misses that he got from Jari when he plays Berrettini. Now, here's the big difference between Berrettini and Jari. Jari's got a two-handed backhand that is threatening. Like, with power, it's threatening. Which means one of the big problems for Alcaraz, particularly in the first two sets, there is nowhere to hide when Alcaraz hits second serves. Serve to the forehand, crushed. Serve to the backhand, crushed. Alcaraz against Berrettini has a safe haven. Kick to the backhand, we start the point from neutral. So Berrettini lost the second serve points one battle against Verev by 15%. It was something like, uh, oh, 65% against 49%. So he lost that by 16%. And Zverev doesn't even, Zverev isn't even good at that stat. He's actually pretty bad at that stat, particularly when, he, when he's hitting his second serve, you know, serving. Alcaraz is going to dominate that stat again. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Versus uh, Jari, who who really threatened him with the aggressive second serve returns. Uh, but against Berrettini, it's going to be neutral rallies. So that that's how I would assess kind of the matchup. It's uh, it's it's going to be a fascinating matchup. Ultimately, again, Alcaraz is going to handle the slice better. Berrettini is going to handle the forehand better. Um, my, my prediction is this, if my prediction is that if Mateo's serve comes back, I don't think he has a great chance. I feel like he needs to dominate with his serve again, that his first serve is going to need to get free points and short forehands or attacking forehands. 
And I, I truly believe that he will not hang from the baseline with Alcaraz to the extent that he was able to hang with Zverev. I do not see it. And do I think that Berrettini's first serve can just blow Alcaraz off the court for three sets? Not really. So I pick Alcaraz. Medvedev Fucevic. I think Daniil in the first set was not serving all that well. And they ended up getting in, in, a, in a lot of rallies on Medvedev service games. And Medvedev, um, you know, he was having to play a lot of D. He was not really in control in this first set. But ultimately, I, I, I felt the errors were coming from, from Daniil. And he completely flipped on both of those things. He starts serving well, and everything that is touching his racket is coming back in play. I don't think he got offensive in this match, besides his serve. Like, from the baseline, I don't think he got offensive. And it was Fucevic with a lot of really great point construction. You know, using the slice backhand, moving the ball around. But I thought what Fucevic lacked against a Medvedev who was, again not giving him any errors and defending extremely well. What Fucevic lacked was finishing through the court with, with baseline power. You know, the drive backhand is not a weapon. The forehand can be, but I don't think it's reliable. So the power is there on the forehand. The reliability is not. And the backhand, I love it as a setup shot. I love the backhand slice. I think he's got a great backhand slice. That's why he's so good at Wimbledon. I love it as a setup shot, but it, it needs to be a setup for what? A setup for the forehand or a setup sometimes, you know, for maybe the backhand down the line. These shots are not quite there for Fucevic as much as they would need to be. Uh, but ultimately, Daniil has played a, a good level against two dangerous unseated players in Manorino and Fucevic. Players who I would rank in the top 10 unseated players. That said, I applaud his effort for getting through those matches. I'm also unsure if I've seen a level from, from Medvedev that, that I think, oh yeah, that's a, that's a title contending level. I don't know that I've seen that. Because every step of the way, you know, despite Daniil doing a good job to only drop one set in those two matches... It seemed pretty difficult for him. I, I, I can't say that he is has convincingly pulled away at any point in either of those matches. Again, even in a straight set win for, for Manorino, except for, you know, the second set where I, I think Adrian really went away. Um, I don't know that I'm seeing the offensive tennis that, that I want to see from Medvedev at the end of the day. He will not face anyone in the top 10 of the power rankings before the semifinal, though. Lahechka next. And then the winner of Tsitsipas versus Eubanks. Speaking of Lahechka, beats Tommy Paul. He could have had the worst moment instead of Fakina. In an alternate universe, he could have been like the, the, the blunder of the day. But he's not. What happened in the fourth set, it's a tie break, and they're going cross-court on the deuce side, forehand to forehand. Lahechka takes a ball off the baseline and, you know, really connects 
on a forehand cross court that had a lot of pace on it and great, great length as well. But he stops the point and he challenges and he was wrong. And he hit a great shot. I mean, it's one of the worst challenges I've ever seen. Just because of just because of the shot that he hit. Like usually players will maybe shank the ball or give up a short ball, and then they'll be like, all right, I might as well challenge. I just hit a terrible shot. Which is legal, by the way. You know, because you're allowed to hit the shot after the ball bounces. You're just not allowed to keep playing. And to me, continuing to play is like when you use your your feet and you get ready for the next ball. That's continuing to play, as I've covered earlier in this video. Uh, but he hits this great shot and stops the point and challenges where I don't know that Tommy Paul was even going to get... He didn't get it back. Like, he had a point-winning shot and stopped the point. Crazy level of sabotage there. Uh, loses the fourth set tiebreak. But in the fifth, you know, where I thought that... Where I, where I thought that he might just go away, he did not. Kudos. Major kudos to Yuri Lehechka for turning the page on what happened at the end of the fourth set. And he ended up playing a lot freer than Tommy Paul. Paul looked tight on his ground strokes uh, in the fifth. He looked... He did not look like he was confident or relaxed. And Lehechka played with a lot of good pace directly at Tommy Paul's forehand. I'd say Yuri's forehand, best shot on the court, best ground stroke on the court. Uh, and and he, would, he was going right at right at Paul, pace deep down the middle. Tommy struggles with that. So that was good stuff from Lehechka, who uh, has really strong legs, great pay, uh, a great base, which is super helpful on grass. It's great for the movement. It's helpful for the, the low balls that you, that you see on this surface. And Lehechka plays Medvedev with a chance to reach his second quarterfinal of the season. At 21 years old. Pretty good. A little bit out of nowhere. Just because there wasn't much form. But. I, I was really high on Lehechka. After February. Fell off a little bit. Great to see him playing great tennis again. Quickly. Um, I don't have that much with Eubanks and Tsitsipas. But I, I will just offer what I can here. Uh, Eubanks seems to be winning on his own terms. It's so impressive. Serving great. The forehand is big. He's coming forward a ton. Love his volleys. Backhand return for a one-hander, it doesn't seem to be that exploitable. Now, I want to see a little bit more. I'm not saying that definitively, but it it seems to be as far as one-handers go. I, it, I don't think Eubanks is anything like team and Tsitsipas on the backhand return. It feels like he knows how to chip it. It feels like on the second serve, he knows how to actually come over it, take it early and come over it. Passes the test from what I've seen. And uh, the other thing I want to mention, you know, Chris is an unbelievable communicator and it makes him a very good commentator, which many of you have heard uh, if you've had the ability to uh, listen to him on Tennis Channel in the U.S., and, uh, you know, as a result, we can learn a lot about from him. We can learn a lot from him. Eubanks is a late bloomer. He's 27 years old, and he's been a challenger-level player until this year. And it's always a fascinating question. Hey, like, what happened here? How do you play for that long 
and you never break through, like you're never a top 100 player, and then at 27, you figure it out, like what happened. And like, I wish Karatsev could communicate that. I don't think he really can, which is okay. I just don't think he can or wants to. Maybe he just doesn't want to. Um, there, there are other players who I, I wish could communicate that. But uh, Eubanks, luckily, can and is willing to. And he's talked a lot about... It's not the only thing that he's talked about. He's talked a lot about committing to diligent and regimented warm-ups and cool-downs. And I've heard this before. I think Tiafo has talked a lot about it. I think Tommy Paul has talked a lot about it. Um, dedicate yourself to focusing on what you do after the match and before the match, before practice, after practice. And that can go such a long way. And it's amazing how often I'm hearing that these days. I just want to flag it. I just want to bring attention to it. Because isn't that, isn't that incredible? Isn't that maybe something that we don't, we don't see? We certainly don't see it, so maybe we don't think about it. But when it comes to preserving the body, not just over the course of a tournament, but over the course of this long, brutal season, like, you got to focus on that stuff. And you're in trouble if you don't. It's not easy. Like, I was talking to, to Bradley Klon on, on playback. We were talking about just how long it takes and how much of a process it is. Obviously, it's easier to play your match and to only spend 30 minutes afterwards cooling down. But if you take an hour and a half instead, you're just... It's just the kind of sacrifice that is going to pay off, right? Eubanks plays Tsitsipas next. Stefanos beat Laszlo Gera. Great job on avoiding the letdown. I mean, regardless of how you feel about Laszlo Gera and his grass court prowess, the fact is, with the schedule that Stefanos Tsitsipas has had to play in this tournament, this was never going to be really like a, I don't know, gimme match. It was never going to be a, you can just pencil Tsitsipas in for winning this match. The schedule has just been too tough for him. And you had to have your antennas up here. Tsitsipas was, you know, he took care of business so well that um, I ended up not seeing all that much of it because there were more dramatic things happening elsewhere. Uh, but, you know, the, the schedule is still something to track. He plays doubles tomorrow with Petros. So there's legitimately, look, I don't think it's it's just not that physical playing doubles, but there's legitimately no off days right now for Stefanos. And while on paper, Chris Eubanks like, might seem like a cozy draw, I just don't really think he is. He's got the serve to challenge the backhand return. He's very smart, uh, you know, technically, tactically. He's going to approach the Tsitsipas backhand. Um. Let's see what the return of serve looks like on the Eubanks end, because that's obviously a key against Tsitsipas. You have to try to get it away from the aggressive forehand. I don't know what that's going to look like, but, you know, I'm a, I'm a buyer in what Eubanks is doing right now. I am. Maybe I'm a little biased because it's a great story, and he's clearly, like, one of the best guys out there and just outwardly one of the best guys out there. I don't know. I don't know, but I'm a buyer. I like to think I'm not biased. I like to think... 
that I've actually been kind of slow to get on board um, in terms of Eubanks being a, I don't know, top 30 level guy. I've been a little bit slow on that. In fact, I haven't been there until maybe this tournament. And now, now maybe I'm, I'm seeing it. So that's Pass and Eubanks. And I think that is all I got. Again, 43 minutes. I don't know that I can do this every day, um, but this is uh, how I felt like going about it today. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.